0: My name is Michael Swindell. I'm the family pastor and the connections director here at the South Campus of Bethel Bible Church. And I got a couple of logistics before I get in the message today. First is, if you are on the far left side, so my right, your left, far left side of your row, would you please pick up the black book that is underneath uh, your chair? That is a way for us to get connected to you, learn a little bit about you, make sure we uh, know that you're here. And if you have any prayer requests, our staff prays through those prayer requests every single week. And so we'd love to know how we can partner with Uh, you in prayer. Uh, Secondly, after the service, if, um, you know, something's going on in your life and you're like, I need prayer right now, we're going to have some elders right over here to your right outside of that hallway uh, ready to pray with you. There will be a sign there that says starting point. Uh, Look for the elders there. They'd be happy to pray with you. Okay, Um, here we go. So, uh, before, last thing before I get started, I just want to say A special welcome again to all of our kids and all of our students who are here this morning. I want to say something to you. We are glad you're here, and we need you. Um, The local church is not um, 18 and older, right? The local church is all those who call upon the Lord. In fact, uh, I want to say, if you have this idea that because you're in kids ministry or student ministry, you you can't be used by the Lord, I just want to squash that idea right away. Anybody who seeks to love and follow the Lord Jesus can be used powerfully to seek and save the lost. And in fact, we actually need your testimony. Can I get an amen, church? We are not going to be able to reach those in Tyler, Texas that God has called us to reach without everybody in the game. And that that means regardless of age, we need you following Jesus. We need your service to us. We need your evangelism to the community. And so I want to say we are glad you're here. Let this be an acknowledgement of your value and a testimony to the fact that God wants to use you as well. Okay, amen. Now we're going to look at Psalm 145 excuse me, Psalm 145. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and get it out. We're gonna have a lot of scripture on the screen behind me today, um, but uh, it's gonna be best if you have that scripture out right in front of you. We're gonna be looking in the CSB translation. That is the Christian Standard Bible. And we're gonna be using that translation over the next four weeks as we look at some select Psalms. Um, this will be our main text, Psalm 145. We're going to look at it in its entirety. Um, and as I told a four-year-old earlier today, it's going to be long enough for you to get bored, but short enough for your parents to be blessed. And so um, if I go a little too long, you, sh- you shout me down. Um, as a, a parent of a six-year-old, I know some of the trepidation of having your kids with you in the service, especially during the sermon. So Psalm 145, um, as you get there, I just want to say here's the main point. So if you're a note taker, this is going to be a great message for you. Here's what it's all about this morning. Bless the Lord, for he is great. A command and the rationale behind it. Bless the Lord, for he is great. And we're going to look how both of those parts of the main point come directly from our text. So here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to look at what does it actually mean to bless the Lord? Uh, very religious-y, churchy language, maybe not always understood. Second, we are actually going to look at the reasons Psalm 145 gives us to actually bless the Lord. And we're going to say it's because of his great actions and his great character. Third, we're going to actually look at how do we do that? So practically, how do we bless the Lord? And then lastly, quickly at the end, I'm going to leave us with a charge, a charge that David leaves us with at the end of verse 21, a charge to let every living thing commit to blessing the Lord. So I'm going to read Psalm 145 for us here in the CSB in its entirety. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into it. It reads like this. I exalt you, my God the King, and bless your name forever and ever I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and ever. The Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Verse 8, The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great and faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all he has made. All you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and will declare your might, informing all people of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all all his words and gracious in all his actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all his acts. The Lord is near all who call out to him, all who call out to him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to bless your name together this morning, to give you the honor and the praise that you deserve. Now, Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and ears to see the power of your word? Would you speak to us directly? Would we receive and obey this scripture for your glory and your kingdom? And they all said, amen. All right. So what's this psalm about? It's about blessing the Lord. How do I know that? Look at verse one and two. It tells us right off the bat. In verse one, we see blessing your name forever and ever as a poetic end to that first uh, verse. As what happens typically in the Psalms and throughout Hebrew poetry, the first part of the verse gives you an idea. And then the second part of the verse adds to that idea. It, it expounds upon it in some way. And so we see, I exalt you, my God, the King, and adding to it, and bless your name Forever and ever. Then in verse 2, King David, the author of our psalm, begins with the idea of blessing the Lord every day, and then he furthers it with praising the Lord forever and ever. So right off the bat, we know this psalm is about blessing. Blessing shows up in the middle of the psalm. In verse 10, we see it here where David uses the verb to bless as a way to describe an activity, activity or an habit of the faithful. And then finally in verse 21, At the end of the psalm, so beginning, middle, and end, we see David take the final step of not just letting us know that he will bless the Lord, but actually literally calling out to every living thing to bless the Lord, Yahweh's name, forever and ever. And so to sum it up, the word bless is used four different times in this psalm. It's used as a commitment from David to bless the Lord every day, then a commitment to bless the Lord forever, then a habit or an attribute of the righteous, and then lastly as a command. Every living thing to obey. So it's quite clear it's about blessing the Lord. Um, but what does it mean to bless the Lord? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever been in churches or in environments where people talk about blessing the Lord, but you, it's, it's kind of hard to get your mind around? Uh, one of the most popular songs of the last decade in Christian circles uh, was written by a man named Matt Redman. And the title of that song was Bless the Lord, and then, uh, or it was 10,000 Reasons, and then in parentheses, Bless the Lord. And it goes a little something like this. I'm not going to sing it for you yet. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Oh, O oh my soul. <laughs> Taylor could sing it. Worship his holy name. Sing like never before, O oh my soul. I'll worship your holy name. And in fact, in some of the church traditions maybe that we're familiar with, uh, it was common for Brother Dave to say, bless the Lord during the sermon or to say to one another, well, bless the Lord, bless his holy name. But what does that actually mean? While the word blesses all over the scriptures, I've, I think many of us, it's harder, it's harder to wrap our mind around than just the word to praise the Lord for his character. So what does it mean to bless the Lord? This is where I think a quote from pastor and author John Piper is helpful here. He kind of sums up the usage of the word in the Old Testament. He says this, My thesis is that in the scripture, when God blesses men, They are thereby, men and women, they are thereby helped and strengthened and made better off than they were before. Pretty simple idea. If God blesses us, there's something we got that's better than when we weren't blessed. But when men and women bless God, he is not helped or strengthened or made better off. Why is that? Because he couldn't possibly be made better off. He couldn't possibly be stronger than he is. He's already omnipotent. So when God blesses us, we're made better off. When we bless God, something different is happening. He says, rather, man's blessing God is an expression of praising thankfulness. I'm gonna skip a line here. It is an exclamation of gratitude and admiration. So to bless God means to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. And so if I can make that even a little more concise, I would say this. To bless God is to see God's work praise it, be thankful for it, and delight in it all at one time. Now, you might think that's kind of complicated. It's kind of a lot to put into one word, but really it's not that complicated. In fact, we do it all the time. Think about babies. Yes, babies. What happens to most of us when we see a baby? We look at a baby, we immediately see God's work. We praise it for its cuteness. We're thankful to God that we get to see the little one and we delight in the little cuteness of that baby all at one time. Do we not? It's almost as if we unconsciously bless the Lord all at one time, right in one moment. Or perhaps a better illustration is this. Maybe you've been praying for God to break through in your job circumstance. And then the day comes where God breaks through and it was only him. What happens? You bless the Lord as provider. You're thankful that he provided for you. You've seen him at work, and you delight and rejoice in the provision. Blessing the Lord is not really that complicated, but I do think it's a little bit of a foreign word to many of us. So that's what it means to bless the Lord. It's this rapid-fire combination. God works, I praise him for it, I'm thankful in the moment, and I'm delighting in it all at one time. That's what it means to bless the Lord. But thankfully, something, David does something super helpful in this psalm. He doesn't just say, bless the Lord. He actually gives us reason upon reason upon reason upon reason to bless the Lord. We bless the Lord according to Psalm 145, because he is great. Indeed, David actually declares Yahweh's greatness to be unsearchable in verse 3. What does unsearchable mean? The essence of unsearchable is this, that we can't search it out. That means that our brain's capacity does not have the ability to fully experience the greatness of God. So no matter how great you've experienced God to be, no matter how great you intellectually ascend that God is, God is greater still. We will be spending our entire life on this earth and the entire eternity on the new heavens and the earth searching out the greatness of our God. That's good news, isn't it, church? Think about the testimony of God's goodness in your life, it will never end. It will only get greater and greater still. It is unsearchable. And David shows us two different ways it's unsearchable it's unsearchable in the fact of his actions and his character. His actions flowing from his character, his character empowering his deeds and mighty works, his mighty works giving testimony. To this God whom we serve. Stick your nose back into your into your Bible with me in Psalm 145. Let's just quickly skim. We see David piling up and emphasizing the acts of God as a testimony to his greatness. In verse 4 and verse 12, we see David talk about Yahweh's quote, mighty acts. In verse 5, his wondrous works. In verse 6, the power of his awe-inspiring acts. In verse 13, his faithful words and gracious actions. In verses 15 and 16, we see his provision for every living thing. In verse 17, we see his righteous ways and his faithful acts. Verse 19, salvation for those who cry out to him for help. Verse 20, his guardianship for those who love him, his destruction for those who act wickedly. Over and over and over again. So what's David talking about specifically? What is he talking about? Well, at minimum, we know the biblical text, don't we? God spoke and creation existed. If ever there was a mighty act, it's God says, there's going to be this, and there it was. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be darkness, and there's darkness. Let there be multiple uh, spheres in the sky, and, let you, and we get to live on one of them. He's talking about faithful acts like the exodus from Egypt after 400 years of slavery, like the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, like the conquering of the promised land under General Joshua, and what he has experienced in his own life is King David has seen God bring together the restoration of Judah in the south and Israel in the north under a united kingship. David, when he's talking about the greatness of God's actions, he has lived it in his own life. But we church, we have so much more to declare about the great deeds of our God. You see, because since the time that David wrote Psalm 145, we have at least the following testimony the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple after the exile, the witness of prophets like Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah and Malachi, the faithful reigns of Hezekiah and Josiah, the virgin birth of Jesus into the world, the amazing signs and wonders and teachings of Jesus himself, and of course, the greatest mighty act of all time, the death of death and sin and the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We see the great work in Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost where the long-awaited and promised Holy Spirit finally fills all of God's people. We see the expansion of the gospel to thousands of people groups around the world. People groups, mind you, that nearly every single one of us, if not all of us in this room today, are direct descendants of. You are in this room, sitting in this chair right now as a mighty act of God. Amen? Where would we be? without the great and awesome wonders of our God. Now remember these deeds, they flow from his character. They flow from his character. And just as David piles up all these mighty acts, all these faithful words, all these wondrous deeds, he piles up character trait after character trait. It's like he's got a bag of the greatest descriptors of God in the Old Testament, and he just starts slinging them out in this psalm, one after the next. Look at verse 145 with me again. We see his great goodness in verse seven and his righteousness in verse eight, which we will spend some time on in a moment. We read of his graciousness, compassion, patience, and faithful love. Verse 13, again, speaks of faithfulness and righteousness and graciousness. Verse 14, speaking of how Yahweh helps all who are oppressed, it again reveals his compassion. Verses 15 and 16 speak of his generous goodness. Verse 17 talks of his righteousness and faithfulness. Verse 20 says he guards all those who love him, but he destroys all the wicked. In other words, the Lord our God is a just judge. And so just as he does with his actions, he piles up characteristic after characteristic of who Yahweh is. And I want to focus on maybe what is the core or the center of God's character, not just in the Old Testament, but throughout the scripture. And we see it in verse eight. Maybe it's a a phraseology that you're familiar with, because it's not the first time we see it in the text. Verse 8, it says this It says, The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and great and faithful love. And of course, this isn't the first time we've seen this. We see it at least seven times in the Old Testament. It is as if the Holy Spirit, who inspired the prophets and the authors of the scripture, keeps going back to this hey, whatever else you know about God's character, if you don't know this, you don't know God. If you don't know Yahweh to be this, then you don't know the true God. It's the core, the center of his character from which every other characteristic emanates from. And the first time it shows up is supremely important. It shows up first in Exodus. This is when Moses was on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. He's got the two tablets. And he goes down the mountain. And kids, what happens? They're serving a golden calf. After God brought them out of slavery 400 years, and they're worshiping a golden calf. Moses gets mad, throws the tablets, breaks them on the mountain, goes back up for round two. And when he goes back up for round two, he asks the Lord a question that we can all ask the Lord. Lord, show me your glory. Will you show me your glory? Who are you? Who are you, Yahweh, this God that we've been following? And here's what Yahweh says about himself. It's the clearest verbiage we have of a testimony from his lips about who he is. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, this is what we read. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, no, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so just after we see the Israelites completely blow it, completely blow their covenant with God, God says, this is who I am. I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'll prove it to you. I'm gonna reestablish the covenant right now. He gives another set of the Ten Commandments. He reestablishes the covenant with his people. Now, some of you maybe have just come to faith in Christ and you haven't had this type of experience where you majorly blow it. But I have, I think many of us have. We have those times in life where we look up one day and we're worshiping a golden calf. Except it doesn't look like a golden calf. It looks like money, looks like a job, looks like a person, looks like an addiction. And we have blown it. I remember in high school, uh, my second, my first semester of my senior year, uh, I was spending way too much time with the basketball team and not enough time with the church team. You know what I'm talking about? It's way too much time with people who were not encouraging me and I didn't realize it at the time, but I had been worshiping a golden calf of, I don't know, athletics, popularity, I don't know what it was. But I remember when I had a moment where it was as if the Lord passed in front of me. I remember it was New Year's Eve, and I was going to a lock-in. Does anybody remember a good lock-in growing up? Come on, church people. And I remember I was going to go to this lock-in, but then I was going to go to another party later. Parents didn't know about that party. And I I walk in the door of the church, and it's as if the Lord passed before me. Michael, Michael, remember me? I'm gracious, I'm compassionate. I love you. And it was as if the presence of God overwhelmed me. I didn't go to the other party, praise God. Who knows what sort of stupid thing I would have done. But from that moment on, it released me into a season of spiritual growth in my life I hadn't experienced up to that point. I had been delivered from bondage. I was saved. It's as if the the Lord said, I'm reestablishing the covenant again. And church, we know what that feels like. We know those moments in life where it is the kindness of our God that leads us to repentance. You see, the second thing I want to highlight about verse 8 is that God makes a point to emphasize he is slow to anger. Why does he say slow to anger? He doesn't preface any of the other characteristics because he's saying, I'm slow to anger, but I'm quick to grace. I'm slow to anger, but I I send speedily my compassion. And we know, church, that one of the most foundational tactics of the enemy is to disparage the Lord's character in our lives. To make us somehow believe that God isn't slow to anger. He's actually quick to anger. He's slow to compassion. To make us somehow distort the truth of who God is. To tempt us to believe in a God who really isn't God at all. But as a made up expression of him through the enemy. Kids and students, would you listen to me real quick for these few words? The Lord is not impatient, unnecessarily harsh, or continually angry. He's not. He is gracious, compassionate, loving, and patient. Think of an adult in your life who represents those qualities that adult is representing to you the true nature of who God is. Now, big people, would you listen to me? When we are impatient, unnecessarily harsh, or continually angry toward our young people and children, we do misrepresent God's character to the next generation. And when we do that, and I will be the first to admit I do around 7.45 every evening, and you young parents know exactly what time that is, When we're harsh or we're angry or we misrepresent God's character, can I implore you to ask your child's forgiveness? They have to know that that is not the character of their God. Whatever other character qualities we fight for in our lives, graciousness, compassion, patience, and love must be included. It is the center of who God is and it must be the center of who his people are. Can I get an amen? That is the character of our good God. So we bless the Lord for he is great. But what does it mean to bless the Lord? It means to see his work, praise him for it with a thankful heart, delight in it. Why do we bless the Lord? His deeds and his character are unsearchably great. Now, how? How do we actually do this? How do we practically bless the Lord? Well, first, look at verse seven. First, by joyful singing, by joyful singing. It says in verse 7, They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Do you sing joyfully to the Lord? Because I would posit that the the degree to which we sing joyfully to the Lord is the degree to which we know the true God. I would posit that the degree to which we sing joyfully in general over the long haul, allowing for lament and seasons of, of sadness, Right, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But the degree to which we know the true God is the degree to which we will see joy show up in our singing. If you know God to be gracious, not just in general, but to you, you will be glad. If you know God to be compassionate, not just to others, but to you, you will be filled with joy. And if you know God to be slow to anger, but abounding in faithful love, then your delight in him will inevitably grow and it will be shown in your singing. Love the church, do you, do you know that God has been good to you this morning? If you do, then joyfully sing of his righteousness. Sing joyfully of his goodness. Declare that the Lord has been good to you through boisterous singing. And you don't have to wave hands and jump around. You don't have to become a charismatic or Pentecostal like I was. No offense if you're out there. But you do need to sing joyfully. I thought there would be some laughter out there. But you do need to sing joyfully to the Lord. At the end of our service today, Todd's going to come back up. He's going to lead us in a song of blessing the Lord. Church, would we show the next generation what it looks like, what it sounds like to sing joyfully? So we bless the Lord through joyful singing. Then, of course, we also bless the Lord through speaking, through testifying, through proclaiming and declaring his great deeds. We're going to look at verse 4 again. It's an especially appropriate verse for us this morning on All Church Sunday. And of course, the first Sunday of a recruiting push for Bethel Kids Ministry. Starting today, extending over the next four weeks, we are going to be offering the privilege and the opportunity of blessing the Lord in front of our most open and malleable demographic of disciples, our kids. Here's what it says in verse 4. It says, One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. When we teach the next generation about how the Lord has worked mightily for his people in the Bible, we're blessing him. When we share our own testimony, here's how God has worked mightily in his greatness in our own life, we are blessing him. It should be part of the regular rhythm of a disciple's life to be declaring to others what he or she has seen the Lord do, to praise the Lord for it, to thank the Lord for it, and to delight in the Lord all in front of the next generation, to do it publicly. One of the reasons we have All Church Sunday is to show the next generation this is what it looks like for the people of God gathered to bless the Lord. So who are we blessing the Lord in front of? Who are you blessing the Lord in front of? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I'm going to say this. This is a proper application of the text, I promise you. If you have never considered blessing the Lord in front of the next generation, would you consider that over the next four weeks? As we seek to find people who will bless the Lord and teach the great works of God to the next generation and Bethel kids? Because I just want to say, it's not the responsibility of the kids people, is it, church? It's the whole responsibility of the church. So let's raise them up together. Let's raise them up in the fear and the knowledge and the delight of God. And if you've never experienced what that is like, I would, I would encourage you to consider it. To consider it. Okay. So we've looked at what does it mean to bless the Lord? Why do we bless the Lord? How do we bless the Lord? Now, we're going to close with a charge to actually bless the Lord, to do it corporately and to do it individually. In verses 1 and 2, David writes this. He says, "I exalt you, my God the king, and bless your name forever and ever. I will bless your name. I will praise your name forever and ever." So he commits at the beginning of the psalm. He recommits at the end of the psalm. And then he leaves us with the charge. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. Here it is. The invitation, the offer, the privilege, and the command. Let every living thing bless his holy name forever and ever. And so like David, like David, we must commit to actually blessing the Lord. Corporately and individually. And by corporately, I mean primarily the commitment to show up to the gathered community of God. To show up. I mean committing to come to Sunday worship when the last thing you want to do is see other people. And we've all been there. Amen? I mean joining and building a life group and or Bible study because it's worth it. And there are people there who need to see you praising the Lord. They need to see the declaration of the goodness of God in your life. For fathers and mothers and caregivers, I mean making it a priority to gather your family together and bless the Lord. I mean, you can't obey Psalm 145 by yourself. It doesn't matter how introverted or awkward you think you are. And you can't do it just with your spouse. To bless the Lord, to commit to blessing the Lord publicly means to do it in the context of real biblical community. And as an aside, (laughs) really quick, And as an aside, yes, that means people who annoy you. It also means people that you annoy. It also means during the summer. It also means during the winter. It also means at all times and all places. Are you in community? If you're not, can I implore you this morning to get in community and to bless the Lord publicly? It's worth it for your life. It's worth it for those around you. It's worth it for all eternity because that's what we're doing, church. That's what we're doing for all eternity is we're blessing the Lord in the context of, Of community. If we are to bless the Lord in community, it's going to cost us less valuable hobbies, comforts, and preferences. But we must do it. It truly is the privilege of living a redeemed life in front of God and in front of others. And if if you long for that community, you're like, hey, sign me up. It's worth the cost, but I don't know where to go. Will you talk to me? Will you talk to Jessica Cantwell in the back? Let us know. We want this to be a church where people are in real community. Okay. And of course, we must do it individually. And here's where I'm going to close. I'm going to close with a quote because it's always good to close with a quote. And this is from uh, Charles Spurgeon, a London preacher of the 1600s. He writes this about individually blessing the Lord. He will use the word praise interchangeably with bless. He writes, if we were asked, do you pray, the answer would be quickly given by every Christian person, of course I do. Suppose there was added, and do you pray every day? The prompt reply would be, yes, many times in the day. I could not live without prayer. But what if the inquiry changed to, do you bless God every day? Is praise as certain and constant a practice with you as prayer? I am not sure the answer would be so certain, so general, or so prompt. We might have to stop a little while before we gave the reply. And I fear in some cases, when the reply did come, it would be, I'm afraid I've been negligent in praise. In that case, have we not been wrong? Should we omit praise any more than we omit prayer? And should not praise come daily and as many times in the day as prayer does? To fail in praise is as unjustifiable as to fail in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that in my good old Spurgeon Study Bible, I was gobsmacked by the amount of praying I was doing versus the amount of blessing I was doing. And if you're reading that and you're going, yeah, me too, that's me. Would you commit today to making blessing the Lord equally as important as your daily discipleship, as praying to the Lord? He is worthy. He is unsearchably worthy of our blessing. We bless the Lord for he is great. That is the command, that is the invitation, that is the offer of Psalm 145. And I pray that we would commit to do it publicly, individually, in front of the next generation for God's glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to bless your name together. Thank you, God, for each person who showed up today to bless your name, to bless your holy name.